All right, so surely most of you know our drill by now. If I achieve nothing else in my life, I want to go to my grave, secure in the knowledge that you all know what the Psalms of Ascent are. But just in case, and repetition being the mother of learning, here's the obligatory review. The Psalms of Ascent are a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Shir Hama'alot, a song of going up. They begin at Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them don't name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. The common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during the three pilgrimage festivals. Pesach, or Passover, which celebrated God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the giving of the law, and Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to travel to Jerusalem to make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and later the temple built by Solomon. You can find that command in Deuteronomy 16.16. And you'll remember that Jerusalem stands on a hill or rather a cluster of hills surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. But Jerusalem stands apart because it is completely surrounded by deep valleys. So however one approaches the city, he will be going up or ascending. This made it a very defensible fortress, as we will see this week, and it also led to the common phrase, going up to Jerusalem. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And as I have mentioned before, some scholars have suggested there may have been a ritual singing of these songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount from the Valley of Hinnom, which lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The temple had several gates, but the one on this route seems to be a common approach to the city and the temple. The gate was long ago sealed with stones, but there are still 15 ancient steps there leading up to the ancient wall. And there it is speculated the Israelite pilgrims would pause to sing their Shir Hama'alot. Since I only speak to you a few times a year, we make these our pilgrimage festivals and read the Psalms of Ascent aloud together. Hopefully these words are starting to feel familiar by now. Listen for the songs we have studied before and try to remember their lessons. So if we, I get everybody to stand up, <clears throat> we'll all stand together. Keeping in mind that the image of that image of coming up from the valley of Hinnom and standing at the base of the hillside below the city with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress and preparing to ascend to the temple. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. 
the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes, or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests 
I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. So this is our fourth Psalm of Ascent. <clears throat> we did the first one on this week back in 2014. So at this pace, and Lord willing, we should be wrapping up about 2022. Hopefully by then I can come up with something else to talk about. Certainly by then, we ought to have an expanded understanding of the idea of approaching God, because that's what the Psalms of Ascent are all about. As we have seen, their subjects vary. Deliverance, prayers for help, prayers for peace, delight in God, delight in the unity of Israel, remembrance of God's faithfulness. But individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God going up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. First, we studied Psalm 124. If it was not the Lord that was with us, let Israel please say. If it was not the Lord that was with us when men came up against us, then they would have devoured us alive in the burning of their noses against us. Then the waters would have flooded over us. The torrent would have passed over on top of our souls. Then would have passed over on top of our souls the waters, the insolent ones. Blessed be the Lord who gave us not prey into their teeth. Our souls, like the birds, slipped away from the snare of the bait layers. The snare is broken and we have slipped away. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. This song reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezers of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servant to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maid to the hand of the, her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Here we saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, a right perspective toward his nature and position in this situation. Understanding who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition of our need for his mercy. And last time we immersed ourselves in Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Here we learn to come to God seeking 
and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God have understood his consistent nature, that he is just, that we are guilty, and that he offers us redemption by his own power and through his own work. In the meantime, Damon has taken us more deeply into the fear of the Lord. We have seen the great justice and wrath of God that are revealed in the crucifixion of Christ and the correct responses of awe, reverence, and frankly simple fear that ought to come with us when we approach the righteous creator of the universe. These thoughts and emotions making all the more glorious the opportunity that Jesus gave us through his sacrifice, that we, sinners, should be invited into the presence of the Almighty, in the words of Paul, as sons and heirs, being made one with Christ through the transformation of faith in him. And we have spoken of the effect that this understanding should have on our conduct, Our actions should be affected by the knowledge of God's justice and wrath, but also informed by thankfulness for the enormous sacrifice that redeems us from that judgment. With these things in mind, I want to take our attention now to a particular aspect of our conduct as we approach the Almighty God. We're going to look at Psalm 125. In this psalm, we will see that the people of God come to God with unshaken trust. I'll read it as usual from the Hebrew-English translation. Psalm 125, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in heart, as for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. As always, I'll begin by looking at the form and poetry of the psalm. These are, after all, songs, and they arise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew. This is part of uh, what sets psalms apart from other kinds of scripture. And Hebrew poetry, as we've seen before, works with a different set of tools than we might be familiar with. Much of Western tradition relies on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents. Hebrew poetry deals mainly in imagery, metaphor, simile, and various kinds of repetition, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds. Often key words play a large part, along with the various kinds of repetition. The most important thing to look for when you read Hebrew poetry is interaction. The Hebrew language lacks the strict subject, verb, object forms we find in English. Words and phrases instead interplay with each other. In some cases, there are strong allusions to other familiar passages, and particularly other psalms, that would be called to mind by certain phrases. We saw this in Psalm 130, where the psalmist cries out of the deep or out of the depths, an echo of the prayer of Jonah from the belly of the fish. Also, as we have seen before, parallelism is a common structure. It is based on a kind of evolving repetition of ideas, lines interacting with each other by repeating words or reiterating the sense of a line that went before and then adding to it in some way. Comparison and contrast play their parts as well. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for those interactions. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us is the stanza. Today we're going to break our song into four stanzas. Verses 1 and 2 are an opening image. Verse 3, a transitional thought. 
Verse 4 and most of 5, a divergent of paths. And then the last line of the psalm, which calls us back to the original image. Verses 1 and 2, a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. The first thing that jumps out is the imagery. It sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Could there be a more quintessential psalm of ascents than one that uses the mountains surrounding Jerusalem as its primary image? We've already spoken of Mount Zion, another name for Jerusalem, and of the fortifying hills that surround it. I want to focus for a moment on one phrase because it has a significance that is invisible in English and which makes it the focal point of this stanza. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. It's that last part that catches the eye in the original, cannot be moved. It's a particular grammatical construction. For anyone who cares, it's technically an imperfect tense preceded by a negative. We can think of it as a negative future tense construction. It might better be translated, which shall not be shaken. The important and invisible part is that shall not. This construction communicates what is called an absolute prohibition. This is the form that was used in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. It is very emphatic. So when we see that in the middle of our extended simile about mountains, it calls our attention. Mount Zion is going absolutely nowhere. And by extension, those who trust in the Lord shall not be shaken. They are encircled and defended by God himself. But this phrase, shall not be shaken, calls our attention for another reason as well. It is one of those allusions we mentioned earlier. It is a phrase we see elsewhere in the scriptures. It's kind of like hearing a worship chorus with a line, a wretch like me, thrown into it. We all know the reference comes from Amazing Grace, and so the songwriter hopes that some of the power of that understanding will come with us as we sing his new song. This is a very common element of Hebrew discourse throughout the Old Testament and the New. Most of the words that Jesus said in the temple, and plenty that he said on the hillsides, were allusions to specific scriptures that would have been known to his Israelite listeners. That's why sometimes they seem to react in ways we can't understand. It's like a a close-knit group of friends that can have entire conversations composed of movie quotes and song lyrics and inside jokes. So it is with shall not be shaken. Consider Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbors, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears on his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money as usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. There it is at the end, shall never be moved, is the translation here for shall not be shaken. So it is possible, even likely, that when the Israelites sang their songs of ascent during the pilgrimage festivals, that they would have in mind Psalm 15. When they sang, those who trust in the Lord, they may have had ringing in the back of their minds, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change, etc., It helps to expand our understanding as well. This is the kind of person that is hidden 
in that little phrase, those who trust in the Lord. Okay, so we have this image firmly in mind. Unshakable Zion. Then we come to the next stanza, verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to iniquity. Again, we have a little bit of invisible emphasis. Perhaps it comes more clearly if I translate it this way. The staff of wickedness shall not rest on the lot of the righteous, so that the righteous shall not reach out their hands to unrighteousness. This allows us to see how the poet ties this stanza back to the first, using that absolute prohibition construction. But this verse is also a transitional thought. We began with the image of the unshakable truster, like Mount Zion, surrounded and defended by God. We might have thought that this was going to be a happy song of contentment. Yay, we all trust God and he protects us. In the context of the Old Testament and the national aspects of God's people, we might have assumed that those who trust in God was just a placeholder or a synonym for the Israelite people. But now another thought emerges that strikes a discordant note. The scepter of wickedness resting on the allotment of the righteous, and the righteous in danger of not trusting, but reaching out to do evil instead. The poet puts special emphasis on this verse using parallelism. In the past, we've talked more deeply about this tool of Hebrew poetry, a kind of specialized repetition between lines. And you may recall, if your memory is very good, that in Psalm 124 we saw a special kind of parallelism called gender matching, where the genders of the words add to the meaning of the poem. I won't spend too much time on this, but in short, when the genders of the words in a line of the poem match, it shows harmony. If they don't match, it can emphasize contrast. And for strong emphasis of a point, the poet might have one line with all masculine words matching, and then a parallel line with all feminine words matching. This last pattern is what we see in verse 3. Most of the verse uses masculine forms, but then we get to the righteous shall not reach out their hands to unrighteousness, and the words their hands and unrighteousness are feminine. This draws our attention to the fact that this stanza is transitional. We are moving from the stable image of trusting God to a situation where there are two options. Looking back, we see that the phrase, those who trust in the Lord, was perhaps more significant than we thought. Because, as I said, verse 3 introduces another option. It forbids the staff of wickedness to rest on the lot of the righteous and forbids the righteous to put out their hands to do unrighteousness. But in doing so, it draws attention to those things as possibilities. Moving into verse 4 and 5, we see this division growing. There are two kinds of people, and each kind gets its own verse and its own destiny. Verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in heart. It might be more clearly translated, Do good, O Lord, to the doers of good and to those who are straight of heart. And then verse 5. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Here we have more parallelism, but of a more straightforward kind. We see the contrast between the straight of heart and those who turn aside to their crooked ways. What could be further from the opening image of one who is unshaken like Mount Zion, holding fast and immovable to their trust in God? The psalmist presents two paths, as I said, and two destinies. On the one hand, we can be those who trust in the Lord, unshakable and straight of heart. To these he calls on God to do good. And on the other, we can turn aside to crooked ways, tempted away by the rule of wickedness, 
and face a very different destiny. Now, it strikes me that this idea of holding fast to a known truth is not popular in modern Western culture, and unfortunately, it does not seem very popular in the modern church. As Damon has said many times in his discussions of our interactions between biblical faith and modern society, it just makes us sound primitive. Our culture values progress. We like fresh, new ideas and developments. Anything familiar must be worn out and ready to be thrown out with last year's Apple products. Recently, I watched a couple of episodes of a show called American Genius. Maybe you've seen it on Netflix. The basic idea is to identify two technological innovators who have some kind of rivalry and then tell the story of the innovation through that lens. So there's one about Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates. There's one about Samuel Colt versus Smith & Wesson. So to create drama, the the TV makers set up those these uh, kind of unspoken paradigms where one guy is the villain and the other guy is the idealistic hero. And their favorite villain is whoever gets the first patent. Whoever it is, that guy becomes the speed bump on the road to progress. The stodgy old fool clinging to his original idea and enforcing his patent while others with bigger and better ideas languish under the tyranny of his inflexible thinking. As Westerners, and especially Americans, we dream of breaking ground, crossing frontiers, going boldly where no man has gone before. And that's just fine for technology. I'd like to have a thinner phone with a longer battery life, just as much as anybody would. But it doesn't work so well for faith and relationship with God. (coughs) Excuse me. This is perhaps the thing I find most frustrating and disheartening about the Christian community as a whole today. We are shockingly weak-minded and easily led into the fashionable thinking of the day. The opinions spouted in most churches seem to follow late night much more closely than they do the scriptures. Now some of you know I spent some time in Europe after college and Toward the end of my time traveling, I found myself literally down and out in London. I was so broke that I was eating one meal a day, and that was pasta with butter. So Sunday morning rolled around, and since I couldn't afford the bus, I walked to the nearest Anglican church, and this place was straight out of a movie. Old building, elderly parishioners, traditional hymns, and liturgy straight out out of the prayer book. And then the pastor stood up to give his homily, He read two verses about John the Baptist going down to the Jordan to baptize. He proceeded to explain to us that John and Jesus were religious revolutionaries, throwing off the stodgy old ideas of the Pharisees for a new kind of religion. And we should walk in their footsteps by breaking down cultural taboos, especially with regard to sexual liberty. I don't know about you, but I think he missed the point. I might even call that a fairly crooked path. He had seemingly no awareness of Jesus' own declaration that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He certainly didn't get around to the part about repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I felt like I was listening to Eddie Izzard doing a parody of a pastor. Today we're going to talk about this magazine that I found in a hedge. And we might be tempted to say, oh come on, his heart was in the right place. He's trying to speak to a modern audience, after all, and he's focusing on grace instead of all these restrictive rules. That's better marketing for the church anyway. But as Damon has recently reminded us, to preach God's love without his justice is not a true representation of his character. 
That is a crooked way. And consider what our psalmist says about those who turn aside to their crooked ways. The Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. To be led away in the Old Testament is a reference to judgment, and the phrase workers of iniquity offers another powerful allusion. It appears many times in the Psalms. Consider Psalm 64 as a prime example. Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aim bitter speech as their arrows, to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, We are ready with a well-conceived plot, for the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. So they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them shall shake the head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God, and will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord, and will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory. The doers of iniquity are enemies of God and his people. They are set against him, premeditated and intentional. And the psalmist tells us that those who turn aside to crooked ways will suffer a similar fate with those who have set themselves squarely in opposition to righteousness. In our current cultural climate, the drawing of such firm lines can be unpopular, can seem un-American. Some today would call it immoral. We live in an era of breaking down taboos, crossing lines, uh, redefining cultural constructs like marriage and family, and even the definition of words like morality and righteousness. It is difficult to swim against that current. To hold fast to the idea that God holds the patent on truth and righteousness, and that it has no need of innovation. Just saying that makes me feel a little backward and out of touch. And it is tough to always feel like an outsider, mocked and derided by the cool kids. But in answer to that, I would turn our attention to one final passage. Hebrews 13, 8 through 14. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who are so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gates. So let us go out to him, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In order to be like Mount Zion, which shall not be moved, we are going to have to go outside the camp. The New Testament tells us over and over again that the world will not love us for trusting God and standing unmovable in the face of crookedness and wickedness. Jesus himself warned us that we would be hated if we followed him. We are not likely to fit in with the culture around us. We are not meant to. Because, as the writer of Hebrews says, we are seeking the city which is to come. For all our holding fast, we are not backward-looking people. 
though we already have the patented truth, it is a truth about a future hope of resurrection in the new heaven and earth. And it is that kind of transcendent hope that we see in the final line of our psalm as the poet turns his attention back to his original image of Jerusalem. Safe and defended on its hilltop, he says, peace be unto Israel. Rarely in its history in its history has Israel known peace, but the Israelites continued to hope and pray toward that end. Likewise, we have been told in this world we will have tribulations, but we place our hope in the one who has overcome the world. So we can come to God with unshaken trust, knowing that his righteousness, his redemption, and his love are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us the strength to be pillars of stone in a world of crashing waves. May we find security in the truth and understanding that your word offers. Help us to hold fast to you. In your name I pray, amen.